Hello, and welcome to Let's Talk About Migrant Workers, hosted by Raffles Community Advocates. I'm Christine, and joining me at the table today is Reikai, my co-host. So how are you doing today, Reikai? I'm doing great today. Thanks for asking. All right, so the primary issue we'll be talking about today is migrant workers' concerns. And we're extremely grateful to have Ms. Debbie Fordyce and Ms. Christine Paddy here with us today. Ms. Fordyce and Ms. Paddy are from Chesen Workers' Count2, or TWC2, an NGO that aims to attain fair treatment for migrant workers. Thank you both so much for taking the time out of your busy schedules to come down to talk to us today. Ms. Debbie and Ms. Paddy, would you like to briefly introduce yourselves to us? Thank you. Okay, uh, good afternoon everyone. It's a real pleasure to be here and to talk to all of you. Um, I've been uh, volunteering with TWC2 since about 2005. Um, and I set up the Cuff Road Project, which is where most of our cases come from. It's men who are out of work and who come to us for case assistance and various other things. I'm the current president of TWC2. So lovely to meet you all. And Christine, yes, that's me. Hi, hello everybody. I'm Christine Pelly. I've been a volunteer with TWC2 since 2011, and uh, I'm a member of the executive committee and uh, actually a volunteer here. Okay. Thank you so much. Um, now that we've sort of settled in a little bit better, maybe I can ask Ms. Pelly about the work you do a little bit more because I understand that you are part of the public education team under TWC2. And I'd like to, I'm particularly curious about the sort of response that you've been getting with your talks and workshops with the public. Is there any particularly memorable moment that you, you feel like you maybe you'd like to share with us? Okay, now public engagement for us has mainly been students. Students, both local and international and um, who come to us and across the board. We've had primary school, secondary, junior college, university, postgraduate researchers. We've had a variety of people coming to us. And we also have our heartbeat sessions where people who are interested in volunteering do come in. Uh, that's on the second Tuesday of every month to have a kind of a, a general awareness of what TWC2 does. So this is what we do generally in public engagement. We talk to them. We learn from them as well, what they know or don't know. And equally for us, um, it's always um, eye-opening experience to see uh, what we do through the eyes of the public. And um, so that's generally what public engagement has been. Um, to a great extent, we try to make people aware of the need for advocacy, which is what we do with migrant workers, and the need for, um, for people to stand up, speak up, or at least become aware, much like what you all are doing today. Um, that's what we do. A particularly memorable moment in public engagement, um, can't quite think of any. General, uh, my, in my general volunteering, I've had memorable moments. Um, very many of them in other areas, but in public engagement, sometimes, yes, I, I don't know, uh, this is run, it's not a moment, but uh, one of the things uh, I find uh, is the way 
international students, students in international schools or people from abroad, the, the way they approach and the questions they ask and the way they look at things compared to students here in Singapore, um, the way they ask and the way they look at things. Maybe I'll, I'll ask Debbie for some memorable moments. Debbie may have had some. Okay, let me just be frank about this. Some of the memorable moments with students are, I would say, negative ones. So I remember once talking to a group of JC students and when I was finished talking, they said, why are you telling us this? What do you think, what do you expect us to do about it? This isn't our problem. We didn't create this problem. And then, I mean, it's good for us to hear that kind of thing because we realize we need to address those kinds of issues. A lot of people think that migrant workers are, this whole system is set up by the government. The government has thought this through. They're coming of their own free will and therefore we have no responsibility towards them at all. And because of that, you know, we have situations like recently a couple of traffic accidents where um, men riding in the backs of lorries are killed or injured. That, you know, brings a sort of surge of interest in this issue or the, you know, the, the transmission of COVID among a large number of workers. But it sometimes detracts from the more systemic issues that we feel are more important. Traffic issues are one thing, they're unfortunate, but they're more easily addressed. Um, the COVID infection is something that, that's, that's something that I think we won't go into. We're not epidemiologists, but we know that confinement in dorms leads to that. So the interest of, the, of students, I think that and the, the most negative kind of response we have is, I don't care. I don't care. There's no reason I should care. You can't make me care. But for those people that do genuinely have some concern, we often find that their thoughts go in the direction of, we need to show them that we care. We'll write them some nice mm -hmm. notes. We'll write them notes of thanks. We'll show how, how we'll be generous to them. We'll um, do a, a donation drive and give them some things that they might like. So this kind of charity or generosity is also not, not addressing the problem. At least it's showing a, you know, some kind of concern. But those are things that we feel like that's a very small step towards a general awareness of the problem. So those are some of my takeaways from speaking to students. Yeah, thank you. And I think it's uh, particularly impactful to hear about your sort of not so good experiences with students as well i think you know my age as well and i think in singapore especially there are some who have this mentality of you know the not in my backyard mentality when it comes to migrant workers concerns and i think part of it comes from the idea that people people sometimes view migrant workers labor rights as something that comes at the expense of our own you know singaporeans labor rights so do you think that such a dichotomy like really exists or do you think that there is a chance to really reconcile both when it comes to talking about labor rights in Singapore? I think um, it will be difficult. For me, I don't see a reconciliation actually because low-wage migrant workers whom we serve are kept very much apart. Okay, they, are, they, are, they come on different terms, they're employed on different terms, they are grossly uh, disempowered, the power difference between them and their employer is huge, they don't have a collective representation, they have a much less voice, um, and I, I, I don't see, 
us like all of us having like a, like a common rights for workers as such you know and uh, and including uh, migrant workers into that group do you see a reconciliation Vivian? well um reconciliation not really but another response to your question is i think that people tend to conflate the different groups of migrants in singapore so of course there are the employment pass holders the s pass holders that also have a minimum salary and then there were the work permit holders so the work permit holders are certainly not taking jobs from singaporeans they're here because even if their salary were increased tenfold no Singaporean, I can guarantee you, would do those jobs. Mm -hmm. So they're looked down upon because they do take these low wage jobs. But there's that conflation of, you know, higher paid uh, foreigners with low wage migrant workers that tends to increase this kind of um, uh, somewhat, you know, this this animosity towards towards foreigners in general and towards foreign workers. Now, the other thing that foreign workers, the low wage workers were certainly guilty of before COVID was gathering in large groups and they would be criticized for that and people would feel that because there's a large group of you know healthy young men who are gathering according to their nationality in certain areas of Singapore that therefore this is dangerous and we should stay away from them. So that's another thing that is um, a result of them not having enough space to move around in, not having, not living in places where they're happy to stay in their in their dormitories and the need to get out and have some kind of you know relaxation and recreation with people from their community so I think that just that lack of space and lack of you know um, lack of well uh, space to to gather and to recreate and to socialize meant that they were seen as a threat and Ms. Fordyce, I actually agree with, and Ms. Pelly also, I actually agree with what both of y'all said because I think that sometimes the public is very quick to view migrant workers or all migrants for that fact as like a monolithic group, like we tend to group them as one uh, category, but in fact they could, they actually come from many different backgrounds and so I think uh, how would you say that we can overcome this like generalization? How can we like educate people about the fact that actually migrants and even specifically migrant workers, they can actually hail from many different backgrounds? Um, well, yeah. I'm, I'm glad that you're asking how can we, I, I assume that means you, how can you? <laughs> <laughs> That's um, true. I, I think that, well, you, you can do it however you can. So I would appreciate it if you would try to, you know, when you hear certain negative views about migrant workers. Now, I think that, um, you know, some people may question, why do we need foreigners making large amounts of money in Singapore? That's not something that we're going to answer right here. But this, is, this has to do with immigration, uh, immigration laws. Those people who are here on um, employment passes they do have a path towards permanent residence and towards citizenship. And that's up to the government to decide how many people they want to um, give permanent residence to or give citizenship to. But among migrant workers, there's almost no path. There's no path to residency. So this is a population that can expand or contract depending on 
the needs of those different sectors, except for now when borders are, are closed as they are. So that's the that's the, the, the economic reason for establishing this system of migrant workers that they're temp they're they're like in a, a state of permanent temporariness. They may stay here for 20 years, they can't go beyond a certain age here, but they may spend almost all their working life here, but they have no path to residency and therefore no path to enjoying the fruits of the Singapore economy. So the, the Singapore economy is meant for Singaporeans and Singapore residents. So they will never benefit from the education system, the housing system or subsidized medical care, nor of course for any old age benefits. So they are truly transient in every sense of the word. And if you want to look at how can we look at them differently, how can we um, you know, see a sense of, of solidarity and oneness with them, I think for that you have to dig deeper. If there's a part of your society that are consistently, um, who, where systemically and very um, strongly they are put at a different level, they are paid differently, they live differently, they have such different rights of, of stay compared to others. When you have this class of people enjoying such a different level of levels of entitlement, for example, compared to everybody else, society will look at them differently. So unless you address the deeper issue, and, and until there's a sense of, yes, they may be transient, but we can still elevate their rights, we can still pay them well, we can still you know, look at how their conditions of living should be. If, if that happens, let, let them be transient, fair enough. You want to have control over manpower as a small country, you want to have, you don't, you know, you want to manage that, fine. But if in all other respects, they can have that level of almost equalness with comparable to a Singaporean, then only people will look at them differently. Until then, you won't. Yeah, and I think that's definitely, I think you've addressed a very fundamental um, concern and sort of topic that we should also consider today. And I think it's the idea of the imagined community that Singaporeans may feel and you know, just sort of this idea of a nation or a community of people, you know, and imagine community that, you know, we center around things like race, class, language, and religion. And at this point in time, definitely, it may feel that in Singapore, migrant workers are definitely, may sometimes be excluded from that circle um, in our individual capacities, in our individual minds. So how do you think that perhaps, uh, you know, would it, do you think that real change would start from changing public opinion or start from a top-down systemic change? Yeah. I don't think the change will start from public opinion. So when you mention things like race, class, language, and religion, those are things that do differentiate, cause differentiations among Singaporeans. But that's not the problem with migrant workers. Many of them are of the same race, Actually, many of them are of the same class within their own community. Many of them speak English or one of the um, official languages very well, and many of them share the same religion. So what is that that's keeping them apart? It's their disposable income and disposable mm -hmm. time, and also the perception of the, you know, of Singaporeans. But by changing 
you would never change perceptions if these men are never able to have time off or enough time off that they would want to go beyond their own group. So remember, these are people who are without their families. So without their families, and if they do have time off, a day off, they would rather spend it with people with whom they feel comfortable and with whom they share some of these, the, the comforts of the, the same kind of, you know, food, language, jokes, um, you know, village life, you know, gossip from home, news from home, things like that. Rather than go out and try to make friends with people who have very different backgrounds and very different um, very different ways of enjoying free time. Yeah. So, so I think that the, you can change your opinions all you want, but you will still have no, no, no avenue, no method, no way to call a migrant worker a close friend because he's here to work. And among your friends, you know, you have friends because you go to school together because you share a lot of same experiences or share a lot of, you know, similar, um, similar activities and interests, but they also have a certain income level. They all have um, enough money to travel within Singapore, enough money to spend on certain, certain, you know, luxuries or needs. A lot of these men don't, you know, so, so I think that opinions alone will certainly not change anything about uh, in the ability to interact or to consider them part of your community. I think that's extremely true because like the transience of these workers uh, coupled with the lack of commonality between like uh, local Singaporeans and these migrant workers all lead to a, a very, it's very hard for them to actually connect even if the possibility was there, uh, even if the opportunity was there, sorry. So um, I think that is the value of rest because and recreation because it gives them a chance to really connect with each other rather than trying to connect with people whom they may not like connect uh click well with so um talking about rest i think i would um uh, i would like to mention a bill passed by the government it's the employment act and it took like the policymakers around 10 years to pass this act and which in this act mandated like at least one day off each week for migrant workers. And would you say that this perceived otherness of migrant workers is what took policymakers so long to pass like a, a bill that mandated such a basic right? Uh, I think one more thing, um, Christine asked, Christine just now, you asked about whether change yep. can come from public opinion or from a top-down way. Uh, I mean, yeah. and as Debbie says, it's quite difficult to marshal public opinion among people who have so little kind of real knowledge and kind of togetherness with this group. But nonetheless, I still think, I still think um, from some of the very feeling um, notes, uh, posts I see on Facebook and so on, I think the public can voice um, and as I said, coming back to you students, uh, for you to use your creativity to see how you can voice um, what you think is right or what you think is wrong. And um, right now, I, more recently, the past few years, I've seen a lot more petitions coming out. So many people, you know, signing up on petitions and so on. So this kind of voice, I think is good. 
you know, it, it's um, and when if it's concerted enough, if it's a large enough group over time, it can have some impact on the policymakers. But of course, this being Singapore, change comes top down most of the time. So that's where it will happen, and that's where it has to happen. But that doesn't mean that um, that I think public opinion um, is not uh, important at all. I think it's very important. I think if there are sufficient numbers, if uh, if the public get together and are articulate enough, come together enough, say what they think, you know, you definitely you have more voice than a migrant worker has in articulating his needs or his rights or something. So if there is enough of groundswell support, um, then. Um, yeah, it'll find its way. I, I, I know for sure many ministries here do comb Facebook. I'm sure they do to get to know what the public think, right? So, yeah, so there, there is a two-way thing. So, in other words, what I'm coming to is change can happen. It will be top-down, but the bottom-up way is important as well. And that that's, that's good. And Coming back to Rikai, you had asked, why did it take so long um, for a simple thing like the day off, which seems to be so necessary to any of us, right? It seems to be so vital, not just for her mental health, for anybody's well-being. Can you imagine, can you imagine, Mr. Ngan, if you were teaching 24-7? You would... I can't imagine how you must feel if you would be teaching 24-7 and not having a day off, right? Now, so really, I think the whole idea that someone needs a day off is common sense. It's just common sense, you know? So if a family were to say, if she has her day off, who's going to take care of my child? Well, you take care of your child or you hire someone else for her day off. You do something, right? But we have found it easy to accept those kind of arguments and sit back, coming back to why, as Rikai says, probably the otherness of this group. They're here like beasts of burden and they just work. And if you take care of them, it's to just make them better workers, right? So like if you, if you look at this in a training manual of foreign domestic workers coming to Singapore, one of the sentences there was, when you're not given enough food, tell your boss, tell your madam or tell your boss that if you have food, you will be able to work better. Now, so I think, you know, if, um, if you have that kind, if you've seen them in this kind of other way, there's this class of people who are in Singapore to be healthy, working, be burden. That's it. Then, you won't find anybody, um, you know, you can take your time a bit about passing the laws, you know. Or, for example, the idea that the day off, I mean, TWC2 started because a foreign domestic worker died at the hands of her employer in 2002. That's how we started. Now, in 2003, we put forward a policy paper on the need for the day off because not just for her mental, for her well-being, but also it is that one day when she can have the opportunity to meet other people, talk to other people about any problems she may be having, you know, to access 
the many facilities there are, the, the, the helplines and so on. She may need that day off for that. Now, this was brought in 2003. But we still have a maid today dying or being, you know, abused. And the day off is, yes, it came into force, but it was a negotiable day off knowing very well that these foreign domestic workers and like most workers have hardly any negotiating power. So, you know, so in reality, the lived reality of many foreign domestic workers is 24 seven. Yeah. Um, I'll, I'll just follow up on the day off issue a bit. Um, so it did come into law, but not under the employment act. As it is, the domestic workers are not yet covered by the Employment Act. And that's another of our issues. And the government says it's because they can't control all the individual employers of domestic workers. So they do come under the Work Permit Act, but not the Employment Act, which would confer more benefits or protections to them. But let's also look at this negotiated day off. So they are obliged to have a day off a week, but it's negotiable. Why would they negotiate and why would they give away their day off? Partly because they have no power to negotiate, but also because if they're promised extra money, they will take it. And sometimes it's not always um, uh, the, the promise of extra money. It's that if you take your day off, I will reduce your salary. So in order to maintain this level of salary, you continue to work every, every weekend, every Sunday. So that's another thing that we have to look at, not just for you know, we started out talking about making them part of the community and inclusion, but this is really for the health of the person. That should come before any kind of inclusion into the Singapore community. Yeah. But we still do have um, the fact that we have a domestic worker who can be starved and beaten and brutalized and killed. That means there probably are a lot who are not speaking up about it because it's not that bad. And in this case, it wasn't until she died that the employers did something about it. Yeah, um, I'd just like to uh, touch on something that the both of you mentioned actually about the power imbalances that migrant workers face when coming to Singapore and when they are in Singapore, especially. So um, given the current pandemic situation, do you think that COVID-19 has made the challenge, made the power imbalances even more extreme? Or for example, like making the challenge of salary claiming harder? I think so. <laughs> I think so. We've, we've always dealt mainly with male workers and our numbers have been reduced to less than a tenth of what we saw before the pandemic because mm. all the workers have been forced to go back to the dorm. The, dorm. the dormitories which were responsible for this rapid transmission of COVID is now the solution to the problem as well as the cause of the problem. So they're not able to walk freely. And this is a real problem for us. We would have, beforehand, we would have, oh, maybe 100, 150 um, people with new cases coming to us every month talking about the problem of accessing medical care for a workplace injury or the problem of um, not being paid salary. Now we don't see those people because they're not allowed out. And that lack of freedom to walk around has uh, comes with other uh, other harms to the worker, you know, both mental and physical. But I think that 
you know, the, the thought of beforehand, if they were able to come out and lodge a claim, but still walk freely, that is far preferable than being locked up. So that most workers are now confined to the dormitory, the work site, and perhaps once a week to, or more, they're, they're able to go to a recreation center, which is kind of like a, a courtyard just for migrant workers for a certain period of time and for, you know, on a certain day of the week. So they are allowed to those places, but not to public spaces. Now, if they gave up, if they lodged a claim, lost their work permit and were confined constantly to the dormitory, that is a much more difficult prospect to consider. So not only are we seeing fewer of these cases where they're complaining about their salary, but I tend to believe that there are simply fewer people who are complaining about their salary because the option of waiting for the resolution of that case while confined strictly to the dormitory is so intolerable to them. I think that, yes, this is a very pressing concern indeed. Like, for example, migrant workers, like what you said, they're only allowed to go out like to these purpose-built recreational centers like only like three times a week, if I'm not wrong. And so this definitely takes a toll on their mental health. And like even then, even with such rules in place, sometimes uh, employers, they may choose to not abide by this rule and they may choose to confine, uh, continue keeping them uh, employees within the dormitory. So what problems do you foresee this will lead to? I think, well, for one, definitely their, their sense of well-being overall, mental, physical, everything. It's We see work, a lot of workers having, you know, having little complaints like health, you know, a stomachache, you know, pain in the chest, that kind of thing. I mean, they you, you must understand, I mean, when they were working in Singapore, many workers here would have a relative, a brother, uncle, cousin, working in another part of Singapore and one of the benefits on their day off one of the things they do is they may gather at one place where cooking is allowed have a get together one person cook everyone eats or they come to little India they meet their friends they meet their people they get they may get mail receive mail from home in a, in a particular address in little India which receives mail for people you know there's a lot to be said for this kind of of, of kind, a certain kind of comfort, simple comfort from coming out from the dorm and meeting a familiar face. These social interaction. Yes, yeah. it's very important. So the, the recreation centers, just because they're allowed to go out three times a week doesn't mean they want to go out three times a week. So I think recent figures that we saw from the government said that, uh, what was it? Six to six, seven. 16,000. Was it 16? I thought it was six. Out of well, out of 200,000. Yeah. Anyway, so it was a small number of the men have chosen to go to the recreation centers simply because maybe they're working and don't have time to go. But also, if they go to the recreation centers, um, you may be in a different environment, but you're not necessarily with your friends. You're with the same people that you live and work with, but you're not with, as you say, your, your best friends, your brother, your uncle, your cousin. And we found that most of the men who come here, they do come because they have a, a 
brother, uncle, or cousin. They have a relative who's come here first, and they rely heavily on that kind of connection. They don't come here as individuals. The way, you know, if you go off to an international university, you do go as an international, not, you know, you, you go, go as an individual, I mean. Um, these guys really do depend on these social connections. And so the inability to, to see their friends here is, is a real hardship for them. But the other thing that's a real hardship is the inability to travel. Now that affects all of us. We're not able to travel easily, but for them, it's their families. For us, we may be stuck here, but we're stuck with our families. And it makes a big difference. So I think one of the you know, common things that they, that they do is um, stay in touch with families through, you know, through calls, through calls and video calls. Yeah, and I think, you know, mental health is definitely, has always been, you know, a concern, you know, for everyone, including migrant workers and uh, people who aren't migrant workers as well, Singaporeans, uh, other uh, non-locals as well. But I think that especially since COVID-19 has began, it definitely inflated and made this issue like balloon. So I believe that the government announced last year that it would be setting up a new task force to enhance mental health support for migrant workers. I believe this project is called Project Dawn. So are you aware of it? And do you think that, have you seen any of its effects yet? I think it has just got started. And I think they also want to have certain intervention programs um, and because of this mental health thing. I mean, for example, during the COVID period last day, they had a few cases of suicide, self-harm and so on happening. And this raised the concern for mental health. Now, by all means, you know, I think it's a good idea to have counseling facilities, you know, buddy schemes, dorm, pro project dorm, where they can get, you know, where they can get some kind of support. Okay. But I think what I think is important for us, we can, we, we are quite good in Singapore, frankly, we're very good at putting together a program. All right. But I would like for us to do another part before you put together a program, any program, you do a needs analysis. It needs you to go in and to look at the causes, all right? And if you look at the causes, you know, mental health issue and so on, you go deeper and back and back and back, you will find that it stems from something systemic, something deeper. And I think that should be addressed, the deeper. You see, you're talking about counseling and mental health after the fact. Okay, he's already in this state, therefore he needs. But what we are trying to say is, there's a good reason why many of them are in this state. I mean, I'm not talking about the one person who is really needs medication and a serious case of memory. I mean, I'm talking about generally. We know why they are in this kind of a situation. And I would say go deeper and address that while you put your counseling and so on. Now, my concern is once we put in some intervention programs, a dorm project or a counseling service, once we put those things in, we're going to think we've solved the problem. It's back to business as usual. Our economy is running. We have workers out there. You know, projects are going on. Construction is happening. Business as usual. But we are not addressing the source the deeper down. So please bear that in mind. 
So while we go and we are celebrating our intervention projects and our programs that we have put in place and we hope to put in place, be well aware that this is band-aid kind of thing. Okay. You remember the uh, study Vital Yet Vulnerable yeah. in 2014. So there was a study that was done by one of the professors at SMU. It was a good study. And they asked a lot of the men how they, they, they used the Kessler scale to study depression. And they found that there was a high degree of depression. And depression is usually associated with lack of job, uh, turmoil in the family, you know, these kinds of things. And a lot of these men were suffering from you know, not being physically with their families, but also not able to support their families. So maybe because they'd lost a job or because their job wasn't paying them or because their, their company was continuing to um, demand kickbacks from them. So they weren't getting enough money to properly support their families. And this was a constant burden on them. So would the response be to bring in people to give them counseling or to deal with the kickbacks that the employers are demanding and their extremely low salary. So it's not through their fault that they were not making enough money to support their family. They were promised a certain amount of family, but as we find often happens, the employer finds a way of clawing back some of that money, some of his salary, um, you know, as in forms of kickback or some kind of illegal deduction. So, so again, as Christine says, it's a, it's a band-aid approach to offer this intervention to deal with the mental health issue when the mental health issue is simply um, a result of not being not being able to get out of debt, not being able to not of course the other things as well now because of COVID, but often just simply not being able to get out of debt. We've noticed that those people who, you know, all of the well, all of the men that we know, having gone through this period of several months without work none of them got even their basic salary among the men that we know. Some of them got nothing at all. Some of them got small amounts, you know, $100 here, $50 there. Um, they got, maybe they got enough um, for their own personal needs, but they didn't get enough to support their families. Now that of course is going to exacerbate mental health issues when their family does nothing but call to say, there's no more rice, there's no food. So how, is, how are these interventions going to help when the family can't buy food? I agree. Like, I feel that when it comes to mental health issues surrounding migrant workers, prevention is better than cure. And oftentimes these measures, they are just a way for us to feel better about ourselves, but they don't actually target the root cause. But also, um, just now you mentioned something about salary claim issues, and I would like to talk a little bit more about that. And I understand that the government has like put in place certain measures to help migrant workers claim their salaries, like uh, resolve their salary claim issues. For example, the Employment Claims Tribunal. But the thing is that this tribunal itself has some like flaws in it. Like sometimes they simply do not honor the the what has been the the decision that has been made, or like sometimes there is a cap on the amount that can be claimed. And so why do you think that, uh, what do you think can be done to remedy this? Like, why is it that even when there seems to be a solution, the solution is like half-hearted and does not really um, fully target the issue? Do you want me to you answer? Did. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
I think it's because it's a pro-business economy. And mm. um, you, you do say rightly this about the employment claims tribunal, but any salary claim before that will go towards, uh, will first go to a mediation. So the mediation is overseen by the TADM Tripartite Alliance for Dispute Management. And during that session, the TADM officer will try to find um, an, a, a, an amount that both the employer and the employee will agree upon. So the employee may say he hasn't been paid $10,000 over a period of so many months. And the, the employer may say, well, that may be so, but I can only pay you 2000 because I'm in financial difficulties. And we find that generally the result is that the case is settled then for that lower amount because the, um, the TADM officer recognizes that the employer is not able or willing to pay a higher amount. And even going to the employment claims tribunal, there's probably not going to be any better settlement. So what you're talking about at the ECT is when the worker insists on going, elevating this issue to the ECT, and then is delivered with a certificate of order, which says the employer is required to pay this amount of money by this particular date, and there's no enforcement to it. And the worker has no way of, of enforcing it himself. He's not, allowed, he's not permitted to remain in Singapore, and he doesn't have the amount of money to pay the lawyers that would need to be involved for what to a Singapore lawyer would seem like a relatively small amount. So, so how could that be addressed? Um, I think most men do have bank accounts by now. So at least there is money that's being transferred directly to their bank accounts. That's an important thing. The other is salary slips. And the other is making sure that the salary slips um, are, are correct. So you know, when we, we do still know a number of people who are not being given salary slips or who don't agree that their salary slips are correct. So when an employer doesn't issue a salary slip, that should be looked at. And there should be, uh, you know, there should be some sort of intervention to ensure that everyone has that with electronic transfer of salaries and salary slips. That will go a long way to at least making sure that the man has some kind of record of what he's been paid in case he does want to make a complaint. Um, the other thing that would really help a lot of these issues is the ability to switch jobs. Exactly what any Singaporean would do if you're not satisfied with your job, you quit the job and you find another one. And that is a process that is almost impossible for migrant workers. Yeah, Sorry. I, would add, I would add to that, um, yes, uh, all the things that Debbie had said. And we, I think it may be a good idea for us to also think, I think Hong Kong has such a thing, uh, of a fund, you know, where you have companies which fold up and say, look, that's it. I'm gone bankrupt. I can't pay for some things, uh, pay the worker or whatever. Then there'd be like a central fund, you know, set up by the government or by whatever to, to at least make sure that workers are not totally you know left in the lurch in in cases where companies fold up and another suggestion that we've made is some sort of a job platform where employers if they're looking for a new worker they are required to take first a worker who's already here looking for a job 
So what we see, one of the, I think the most common um, um, what topic that's brought up to us in our hotline is how to switch jobs. Now it is technically possible, but in reality, almost impossible. And it's partly because it's, it's not a smooth system, but also because the employer has some way of preventing the worker from moving to another job. So there's something that when the employer is making use of uh, some sort of tactic to prevent his worker from moving to a new job, that's something else that should be addressed. So if there were a, a, a job search platform that workers could go to, it would be much better to set this up in a situation like we have now where we have the supply and the supply and demand of workers is much more equally balanced where there are more employers looking for workers rather than having a glut of workers looking for jobs. We do have a lot of workers who are searching for jobs who are not able to get them and are simply being sent home at a time when new workers aren't able to come back. So we have every day a number of workers who reach out to us and say, you know, my employer has canceled my work permit before I had a chance to apply for a new job. Why, you know, can you help me with that? And usually we will make a plea to the MOM, but I would say uh, it's very often unsuccessful. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think, you know, those new suggestions that you have just brought up uh, have also been raised uh, in various articles, various uh, parliament discussions as well. And I think these are definitely things that we should actively consider in trying to create or trying to push for systemic change. But I'd like to sort of pick up on something that Ms. Debbie just mentioned about the documentation of workers' salaries through uh, salary slips or now electronic uh, payments as well. So do you think that similarly for, for example, uh, workplace injuries, uh, and workplace injury claims or concerns that it's also similarly hard for workers to document their injury and show proof of their injury at their work site? And does this affect their injury compensation claim? That's much less of a problem. So with the work injury, we find that um, the, the outcome is more often successful. It's successful in a number of different ways in that sometimes it does require intervention on our part, but successful in that eventually the worker usually does get treatment and usually does get the compensation that he's looking for. So there are sometimes when the employer will try to um, invalidate the claim or you know challenge the claim, but I would say that happens um, uh, not to a very large degree. In salary claims, I think the outcome is much less often a positive one. But you're right, um, Christine, when you say, you know, at the workplace, for the, by right, it, it's our Work Injury Compensation Act, I mean, provides for a no-fault system. So in my mind, when you say it's a no-fault system, then um, the onus is on the employer to prove that it was not a workplace injury. But we somehow find very often that... Uh, it's, it's a reverse situation. The worker is asked to prove that it's a workplace injury, which I think is yeah. it's wrong. And it's very hard for him to prove that when so many things on the work site are not in his control. Okay, starting from witnesses who are still under the employee of the employer. 
you know, to come out and speak up for him. I have had more than one worker, a few workers who've said, I can't blame my friend for not coming and being my witness because he needs the job. He will be out of a job. So one of the things would be good is to have like a safety supervisor who is not an employer, employee of the company, things like that could be done to improve the situation on the ground. But as Debbie rightly says, it's our salary claims are the more often meet uh, less, much far less satisfactory outcome. Yeah. Uh, I think what you said is extremely true. Like, for example, um, like you said that the burden of proof ironically rests on the migrant workers themselves rather than the employers, despite employers having it, although the law says otherwise. And maybe there are also other reasons, such as the fact that developers are not required to include a safety component in their tenders. So like that leads to more workplace injuries. And like, I think most importantly, like, and most significantly, a lot of migrant workers have to work overtime. And it has been proven like through many studies that working overtime leads to a much higher chance of facing workplace injuries. And so how, what do you feel about like this need for migrant workers to balance, uh, to strike a balance between working longer hours to get more pay and the possibility of facing more workplace injuries. Like, it feels like there's no better outcome. Like, they're mm -hmm. both equally bad. Is it? Very, Is that... simple. Very simple. Just don't pay them $1.60 an hour. Mm. I mean, pay them a decent wage. I know that, I mean, even getting a minimum wage set for Singaporeans is very hard in Singapore. We have all kinds of things waved in front of people like the were progressive wage scheme. I don't know what, what, you know, that kind of thing, but there's no minimum wage. But at the same time, you cannot pay exploitative wages, plain and simple. If you pay people at that level, you know, what, 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 what do you expect? So we are saying we're going to pay them, you know, a low salary so that they can work punishing overtime hours so that they can at least have some money to send home. I think we're talking from the position as citizens of a fairly rich country. All right. We, um, we have, if the only way a business can succeed is if they pay exploitative wages, then the business should close down with my blessing. Mm. Really? It's, it's a situation where the construction marine and process sectors have become Become addicted to low-wage workers, and they couldn't. They probably couldn't survive without it. So, if if you had your way, and they all, all were <laughs> giving a, a decent living wage, yes, I think many of these businesses would close down. But then you have to look at what the actual cost is. Yeah, you know, somehow uh, there are there are other countries who manage to pay workers doing these similar jobs. They manage to pay them a living wage. So here we're we're not. Uh, it's ridiculous to say it's more than what they would make in their own company in their own countries, because the system of getting a job and usually involves uh, money under the table and various levels of corruption. So that is one problem. But the other problem is that the salaries that we tend to see for a lot of the workers that we assist is five hundred dollars a month. That's the basic salary. So to up that 
up that amount to eight or 900 a month, you have to work beyond the legal limit of overtime hours and you have to work every day of the week. So when we see something like that, yeah, we should consider it unacceptable for a country like Singapore. You know, Singapore has no excuse for treating workers like that just because they're foreign workers. Whenever we see that conditions are such that no Singaporean would ever, ever consider it, there's something wrong. Maybe there's something wrong with Singaporeans as well. <laughs> but there certainly is something wrong to think that it's okay for other people to do things that I would never stoop to do. But I have to say on the part, um, to be fair to employers, huh? the cost to the employer of the worker is not his $400 salary alone, okay? So the levy for that worker could be anything from 350 to 900. So the levy, 950. 950. So the employer may be paying more in levy even than the basic salary of the worker. We've had a case where many workers, where the, where the employer was a subcontractor, he had received the progress payment from the main contractor, but he told the workers, look, I don't have enough to pay you a salary because I have to pay the levy. So you choose, should I pay you your salary or should I pay the levy? If I don't pay the levy, your permits will be canceled. Make them guess what the workers chose. Yeah, Make, what do you, what think, do you think the think? workers chose? You tell me, come on, all of you, unmute yourselves, do you silent majority if down given there? given a choice, do they <laughs> ask you to pay the levy or to pay their salary? What did they choose? I've got names here, you know, I can call out a name. Uh, I'm not sure about the audience yet, but I think they would have chosen the levy, definitely. You're right. The workers told the employer, never mind, don't pay a salary, pay the levy. Because no. without the levy, they'd lose their jobs. They'll lose their jobs. If the levy is paid, maybe they'll get their salary. I mean, I if we we fair enough, you know, in Singapore we want our small medium enterprise, I mean all our businesses to survive. We need them. Actually, they're going to be our lifeblood. We need them. Think, but can we think of some ways to help them survive? Okay, without them saying, I can only survive if I pay bad, very, very low wages. Could there be kind of a rental relief? Could there be um, tax breaks? I don't know. I mean, I'm not an economist, but I leave the problem to them. What I'm saying is, uh, even if I'm not an economist, one thing I can recognize is an exploitative wage. And I th yeah. think that cannot go on. Mm, and I think on it, yeah. he says, <laughs> yeah. yeah, sorry. No worries, no worries. And I think what both of you have mentioned, you know, just now would be the idea of the tr of treatment of migrant workers in Singapore and how I think both of you um, talked about, you know, the word exploitation. And I think this idea goes back to the fundamental um, concept of dignity, of human dignity, uh, dignity as a human being, as a worker, in Singapore. And, you know, there are, um, I think Ms. Pelly also mentioned how difficult it is to really have systemic change. Um, I think recently we've got a few MPs, members of parliament, um, proposing that the Foreign Employees Dormitories Act uh, could be expanded to improve living conditions in dormitories housing less than 1,000 workers as well, because uh, the current act covers only licensed dormitories housing more than a thousand workers. So do you think that 
you know, of course, um, part of this has got to do with the COVID-19 response. And do you think or do you worry that after the whole fear of COVID-19 has sort of died down, that public opinion will shift away from uh, being con so concerned about, mi about migrant workers' concerns? And do you think this will affect advocacy work in the long term? I think it very definitely will. Um, one of the results of COVID is the workers are locked up. They're less visible. And this was always a common complaint that people had, even for, for people who have no particular, you know, negative feelings about migrant workers. They might make a comment now and then, look at, you know, look at how many of them there, they, there are in gardens by the bay and the botanic gardens in Sentosa. You know, I never want to go to those places because it's so filled with migrant workers. They were allowed to go all these places. They were allowed to, you know, men and women, you know, they, they find girlfriends, boyfriends, and people find that um, unacceptable. And then just large groups of people, you know, sitting out in an open space. People find it unsightly, perhaps, and when it's men, they find it dangerous. So now that the dormitories are uh, maybe bigger and better, people will be satisfied that this problem is solved. We don't have to think about this anymore. But the problem is very much out of sight. The problems that we're describing, that we've been describing, still very much exist. And yet, it's kind of like not giving the domestic workers a day off. Um, when, the, when the migrant workers don't have, don't have a day that they can move into the public sphere, um, how do we know what's happening? Mm -hmm. We, you know, the, uh, the recreation centers are technically open to the public, but I don't think that they're places where the public would really want to go unless they have some business with migrant workers. Um, but uh, what was I going to say? That's, it's, it's not a normal environment, you know, and it's, it's not a way, it's not a, it's not normal for the workers. It's not normal for Singaporeans. So that's hardly um, the kind of freedom that the men are looking for. Yeah, um, unfortunately, uh, because of time constraints and you know, we would have to end very soon, but maybe I could just ask a quick question uh, to sort of close and uh, consolidate what we've all discussed. And I'd like to ask the both of you, what is one thing that you hope for that you hope uh, can happen in the near future in Singapore that would benefit migrant workers? You first. I've got so many, can't think of them. <laughs> um, well, there are a lot of things that would have to change, but what I would like to see, this is just in very in general terms, for migrant workers to see that their lives have improved on account of their work in Singapore. So whatever it takes to make sure that through their work, they're able to improve the life of, for their families and for themselves. Now, there are a whole host of things and a lot of those things that we've described, but very often we see that that's not the case. They go back deeper in debt to a family that has an even harder time than before they left. They've lost they've lost on account of their time in Singapore rather than gains. So that's something that I think Singapore should 
see as a great shame for this very prosperous economy that relies so heavily on migrant workers? I think, I mean, I would have to say the same thing. I'd like, I, I could never understand why having migrant workers here is not a win-win situation. It should be a win-win situation. We desperately need them, okay? Now, they desperately want to work, but if they all went back, yes, they each would be desperate in their own countries. Can you imagine what Singapore would be like? Can you just imagine that if we didn't have them? All our projects will grind to a halt. We'll be short of landscapers. We'll be short of people cleaning our streets. Our marine industry will be paralyzed. We equally desperately need them, but purely because conditions in the sending countries are so bad that we have this constant supply, you know, of cheap, exploitable labor. Mm. Uh, we don't seem to have feel the impetus to improve things for them. There, there seems to be no impetus. And that's sad. It is sad. I think we, we can be better than that. I mean, um, we, a lot of times we make decisions based on efficiency and the general economy and so on. We make choices and it's often the choice is what's best for the economy. But I think one of the things I hope students like you and our leaders and everybody will understand that when we make choices, they are value laden. We can't just say we made the choice because it was good for the economy and just step back. That's a cop out. Okay, you do make a choice. Yes, you want to think of the economy, but you also have to understand that when you make choices, it's loaded with your sense of values as to the right choice to make. Yeah. That's what I would wish Win-win. Mm, yeah. And yeah, I think definitely each of us as individuals should think a bit more about the value of greater, more, uh, more comprehensive migrant representation in Singapore. For example, you know, off the top of my head, you know, migrant arts can tie us to our cosmopolitan immigrant past. And I think, you know, from there, we should all think individually about really our value system as individuals and as Singapore and how we have come from our past, you know, since the 1960s and 70s and, you know, the various immigration laws that we've had till now and sort of reflect upon our journey as Singapore and how we can make Singapore a better place for all. And maybe I'd like to just challenge our listeners here to educate ourselves a bit more on migrant workers' issues asking for more transparent dialogue and to make it a point to regularly repost stories that highlight uh, various migrant workers' concerns and really spark this dialogue with your friends, family, co-workers and so on. It really, really does help. And, you know, just sparking these conversations, trying to have these dialogues do help. And it is with that that unfortunately we'll have to end this podcast now and to our listeners, if you've enjoyed this podcast, please follow TWC2. You can go onto their website or on their Instagram page as well and find out more about what they do, how you can help, and educate yourself a bit more with the sufficient information to continue to spread more awareness about migrant workers' rights. As well, 
if you're interested to know more about uh, my advocacy group, please do follow us at Comet on Instagram. Thank you. Thank you so much, Miss Debbie and Miss Pelly, for taking the time to talk to us today. It was really insightful. Thank you. Thank you.